In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thank you, the Sims family. Great job there. When have you experienced the shock of an alien culture? We travelled to Kenya last August. Do you remember when we could travel? We arrived in the early hours of the morning in a foreign land with foreign smells and a different time zone. I didn't know where we were, I didn't know where we were going, and there was this smartly dressed chap with a very good English uh, 
comprehension. And he came over and was only too happy to greet us, welcome us in the country and show us where to go, taking our bags with us. And it was then that Joanna said, actually, he's only helping us so that we'd give him a tip. Culture lesson 101, you're in a different culture, Gareth. And we've all experienced that culture change recently, haven't we? Going from normal life into lockdown was sharp and we felt it. You notice it sometimes, this culture, but the truth is we've always been aliens and foreigners in this world if we're Christians. That is according to 1 Peter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is where the book of Daniel can be a great help to us. Daniel and his friends were taken from their land and culture and placed into another one. You and I have been raised in a culture that we're not always so good at spotting the dangers of. But the fundamental question that they asked and that we must ask is exactly the same. It's who is God? We find it is exactly the same question that our culture asks as we live as aliens and strangers in this world. And therefore, this is an excellent time to look at this book. Lockdown has given us that culture shock, and it's time to see who God is. The danger Daniel and his friends had were right in front of their eyes. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There is a war, there is a mighty shift of power. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, gives way to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. There are losers, there are winners, but verse 2 tells us who's behind it all. Look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. This is not just a war, it's a God war. And from the Babylonian side, this is a mighty victory. Their gods have defeated the God of the Jews. And the setting of this God war is part of a much bigger context. And so it's worth us pausing for a moment to set the whole book in its historical context. We think that this moment of exile of Daniel and his friends happened in 605 BC. Now, we're in the southern kingdom of Judah here. If you remember, the nation of Israel was one under David and Solomon, but due to sin, it split into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes of the north had sinful king after sinful king. They had repeated warnings throughout the prophets, that, and they went into exile in 722 BC. God's enemies came, they defeated his people and took them away. And this should have been a sign to the remaining tribes of the southern kingdom. 
They had some kings who listened and obeyed God and some who did not, but eventually they too ended in disaster. The southern kingdom was finally taken away into captivity in 586 BC. So Daniel is part of an early exile group taken to live in Babylon. The Babylonians have won. They're taking the royals and the elite class into an early exile and Daniel is one of those chosen. One thing that's strange about the book is that it's written in uh, by two people, it seems. It's written in two voices. You've got the third person author, and yet then you have this voice of Daniel himself in the first person. And that's led scholars to think that the book was written specifically to an audience who were in exile, wondering if God was really in control. The two voices combine to give that one story. Back to the story. Is God in control? It doesn't look like it when the temple treasures are put in the temple of the foreign god, one nil to the Babylonian gods. It doesn't look like it when the people are captured, two nil to the Babylonian gods. But look again at the start of verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hands. Verses 1 to 7 in Daniel 1 show us God's sovereignty in judgment. This is a judgment. It's a judgment from God. The one true God uses the foreign nation of the Babylonians to bring about his sovereign purposes. This gives us a great window into how to live wisely in an alien culture. It looks like Daniel and his friends are in a washing machine of culture, being washed of their Jewish roots and then put on a spin cycle. Look what's taken from them. They're taken from their home in verse 3. They're re-educated, verses 4 and 5. They're renamed, verses 6 and 7. Their names change from names that spoke of the one true God, the God of the Bible, to names that spoke of the strength of the Babylonian gods. So Daniel meant God has judged. Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. But they, their names were changed. Daniel became Belteshazzar. May a God protect his life. Hananiah became Shadrach, the command of Aku. Aku being a false god, the god of the moon. Mishael became Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah became Abednego, servant of Nebo. Nebo being another false god. Naming is ownership. So Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to bring the best of the best from the Jews to his kingdom for them to be absorbed into his. Naming continues to keep the score rising in the favour of the Babylonians in the God War. Ownership of the people, 1-0. Taking the articles from the temple, 2-0. Re-education, 3-0. Changing their names, 4-0. And the amazing thing is that these four young men didn't fight back. Well, you could say, how could they? They were only young. We think they were about 14, the age of uh, those entering YPF. 
They were swept along in a powerful culture. What more could they do? It's easy to feel that way in our culture. If it's the disorienting mess of coronavirus that robs us of our bearings, we can't go about daily life as we normally do. We find it hard not to gather physically as a church. We're told that when we can, we'll not be able to have coffee and fellowship as we normally do. We can't sing. Oh, but that's what we've missed so much. It's easy to feel powerless against forces that seem set to disrupt our Christian growth. Should we give up now? Well, that's not what Daniel did. Verses 1 to 7 show us God's sovereignty in judgment. There's only one glimmer of hope here, but it's quite a hope. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim over. Those that trust in the Lord will be those who have wisdom to act wisely when you seem to be losing ground again and again. And Daniel and his friends understood this. They based their actions on this. God's people cannot and will not be absorbed into the culture. The score may be 4-0 to the Babylonian gods, but the game is not over yet. Verses 1-7 to show us God's sovereignty in judgment, but verses 8-21 to show us God's sovereign blessing. And the chapter moves from dark to light, from a dark start to a bright finish, around verse 8. Yet what they chose to take a stand on may surprise us. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Hands up if you've made the jump to vegan, if you prefer eating this stuff rather than your normal meaty diet. I've got a vegan cookbook, but I'm not quite there yet. We need to understand the Babylonian culture of food. Their culture is so different to ours, and sometimes you need to leave your culture to see your culture. So back to a scene in Kenya. We found ourselves sitting around a charcoal fire, eating with a friend and his family. We asked them how often they eat meat, and they said probably once a month. A special occasion, someone's birthday, they catch a chicken, they kill the chicken, they all celebrate. We were served green grams and rice. And green grams are like a lentil. And it struck me that at the same time as I'm eating green grams and rice in Kenya, there are people in trendy coffee bars in London eating exactly the same thing. They're just paying an astronomical price for it. What is trendy and chic, healthy and hip in London is the poor man's meal in Kenya. Culture does that, changes your perspective. Culture's a strange thing. Don't miss this. Daniel was not making a health food stance here. He was not before his time recognizing the power of vegetables. He was choosing to say no to the best of the best. He was choosing to eat poor man's food. Verse 8 says he asked for permission not to defile himself. That word is used twice in the sentence. Some have suggested it's the Levitical food laws outlined in Leviticus 11 that are in mind when Daniel rejects the food. If that's the case, 
Why does he reject the wine as well? Some have said it's because the food was offered to idols before it went to Daniel. The text doesn't say that. It just says Daniel did not want to defile himself. It doesn't say how this food was defiled. If the meat was offered to idols, it's most probable, probable the vegetables and the seeds were offered as well. Some have said that Daniel was taking a vow, like the Nazarite vow that says no to alcohol and the abstinence from certain foods. And yet then in Daniel chapter 10 verse 3, it seems as if he's back eating meat again and drinking wine. And the honest answer is that we can't be sure what it was about this food that was defiled. Yet Daniel and his friends draw the line here. There's something really helpful for us here in application. The Bible talks about clear boundaries, things we should do and things we should not do. But that only accounts for a small amount of the decisions that we make in life. Most of life is governed by wisdom, and particularly so when living in an alien culture. See, wisdom is applying the light of God's word to the situation at hand. That's why we get two Proverbs that seem to say the opposite. So Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. But Proverbs 26 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Wisdom is fitting the word to the situation, fitting the right word to the right situation. When we look to trusting God in our culture, we have to draw the line, we have to take a stand, but we need wisdom so that we can do so. How does Daniel apply this wisdom? The chapter doesn't give us as much of an idea other than the fact that the idea seems to start with Daniel in the quiet place, in his heart, then move to a question of an official, then to a deal struck in verse 12, and then he seems to include his friends. Later in the book, we get clues where this came from, where, where this resolve came from. You see, Daniel 2 and Daniel 6 reveal Daniel's prayer life. He was a man of prayer. Daniel 9 shows that he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. This guy knew his Bible and said his prayers. And it was a regular pattern in his life. So Daniel and his friends seek wisdom. They draw the line at eating the king's food. Daniel and his friends take a stand. And I said it's not crystal clear why they take this stand, but I think we can look at the context of them being taken by King Nebuchadnezzar, who's engaging in this God war. They feel like they're 4-0 down. It's half time, but they trust God has a sovereign purpose in them being there. They know that the re-education program is trying to assimilate them into the culture. They know that the renaming is robbing their God of glory and pointing a light on the false gods of the nation. They want to show that they trust in the one true God of the Bible, the sovereign creator who spoke the world into existence. They're willing to forego the riches of the culture. So they say no to the riches, they say no to the best 
and they say yes to the poor man's food. And they know that that will show that God alone is their strength. The Creator God is able to bring strong, healthy bodies out of trust in Him alone. So with tact, with kindness, with sensitivity, but also with a degree of firmness, they take their stand. In verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now it's really important that we pause here. This is a pretty small stand. It's a minor thing. Four teenage boys and a guard know about this. Remember, they're surrounded by great marks of power, indeed, the superpower of the day. And they don't know how the story will end. We can read on and we can see this is the start of great things for Daniel. It's a small stand for an important reason, surrounded by a powerful enemy. Do you see your life there? We're called to faithfulness in the small areas, in honour of our God. Those places where perhaps only our sovereign creator sees. Some of you will be called to make big stands as well. But we're all called to stand in the small places first. And that faithfulness glorifies God. It was that faithful stand that God chose to bless. So in verse 15, they grew to look healthier than everyone else who ate the royal food. In verse 19, they're found to be without equal in the university. In verse 19, they're chosen to be brought into the king's service. And then in verse 20, they rose to be 10 times better than all the other servants in his court. And finally, verse 21, and wasn't it read well? Finally, verse 21 tells us that Daniel gained a strange victory over his captors. He outlived them all. He served for 70 years or more. Kings rose, kings fell, and Daniel remained constant. What are we to make of this? Chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, show us God's sovereignty in judgment. Verses 8 to 21 show us God's sovereign blessing. And the hinge in this faithfulness is the small places of this servant to the Lord. The servant who said his prayers and knew his Bible and was willing to draw a line and stand politely but firmly living for God in an alien culture. To live that way, we need our eyes to be fixed on the ultimate servant of the Lord. See, you and I are not Daniel in this story. We're called to be like Daniel, but we're, we're not Daniel. No, Jesus is the greater Daniel here. You see, Daniel is faithful to God in a dark time in Israel's history. Jesus alone is faithful to God as the greater Israel, faithful where they were faithless. Daniel was sent into a foreign land as a judgment on their unrighteousness. But Jesus was sent 
into this world to be judged so that we could be made righteous. Daniel trusts God when all around him are being crushed by the enemy. Jesus trusts God in letting himself be crushed by the enemy. Daniel is blessed in all of his faithfulness and through him God's people are preserved. Jesus blesses us in his faithfulness and through him we're eternally safe. Daniel outlasts his conquerors and triumphs over them. Jesus rises from the dead and triumphs over our oppressor death. The way to a wise and faithful stand is to fix your eyes on him and listen to his word. He asks us to examine our hearts as we live in this world. Listen to Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Have you not heard what it was said? You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Jesus wants us to examine our hearts. Start there. The rest will flow from that. So a few things to consider in application. Firstly, be willing to be faithful in the small things first. As we trust in God and are faithful in the small things, so our faith grows. We'll see this later in the story. Don't jump ahead to the big things though. Start with the small things. Jesus is wisdom. Don't overcomplicate it. Wise living is following Jesus. And we do have to draw a line. Where are you called to draw that line? Is it in the way you parent? Is it in the media you consume? Is it in the language you use and language you listen to? Is it in the places you will resolve not to go? Is it in what time you go to bed? Draw that line in a quiet, respectful way, but encourage an independence on Jesus. And remember that the majority of the Bible speaks into wisdom. Expect God to bless it, but know that ultimately our blessing is Jesus, not in how it goes. Your vindication is in Jesus, not in what happens. Daniel outlasted his oppressors, but Jesus has already fulfilled that. Remember that you and I are not Daniel. There's no guarantee of safety here on earth. Yet your ultimate victory is safe in the Lord Jesus. It may not come on earth. Our home is not here. It's with him. So keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus.